physical body. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteous, unrighteousness, is placed among, among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and it and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can saltwater spring yield fresh fruit. Fresh fruit. <laughs> fresh water. Sorry. <laughs> okay, the next one is Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become a wise in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Ashley. I think we all know that our words matter. You might be able to say after saying something foolish, I'm really, really sorry that I said that. Um, I didn't mean to say that. And, and it's probably true. You just can't necessarily just make it all better that quickly. No, nope, the words that we say or even the words that we don't say, they linger long in our hearts and in our minds. And that is why the Bible speaks quite consistently about what we heard in James chapter 3. It's interesting, it begins with, those of you that want to be teachers, just want you to know that if you're going to talk like that, that much, and about something that is so important, with it comes a greater expectation and therefore a greater judgment because the words that you say or the words that you do not say matter. Sometimes when we think about this, preach about this, talk about this, speak to one another about this, it's usually that because we realize that words are important. And over the last, say, 30 or 40 years, the, the predominant, I think, speech about our speech has been that we really need to be careful, we need to be encouraging, and we need to be uplifting. And that's true. I still remember a sermon I heard years ago, and I don't know if the statistic was true then or if it's true now, if something's changed, I don't know. But for every negative thing that you tell a child, you need to say at least seven positive things. Do you remember hearing this? Because that's how speech works. Do something negative, seven positives in order to correct. And I, I just, again, never forgotten that. The Bible also says that one of the things that speech does is it reveals what's actually going on inside of you. It was my first year teaching at the college, and I was sitting in on a class that I was teaching. Um, the one who taught me was still actually teaching that subject matter, and so I'm sitting in on this class, and I just wanted to, to, to see again the master do it. It just happened to be on the very same day that when my mentor was preaching, his son was pre or he was teaching, his son was preaching to the class. And so I thought, oh, this ought to be interesting to watch a son preach. 
in front of his father. And in the middle of the sermon, I don't remember exactly what it was that he said, but you could just tell, wow, I don't think you're supposed to say that in a sermon. It was just one of those moments where he kind of got caught up in the passion of the moment. And he said something that was questionable. At the very end of the time when we're spending a few moments just kind of reflecting on it, what did you think about the words that he just spoke? And the son quickly came to his defense, to his own defense. And he said, hey, I want you to know that literally, like, that was just an accident, and that's not really in me. And his dad responded from the words of Jesus, son, if it wasn't in you, it wouldn't have come out of you. He wasn't being overly critical. He was just speaking the truth. Speech not only has a really powerful effect, positive or negative, on those that are listening, but speech or lack of communicating with one another reveals something about ourselves. And, and I think that's why it's important because um, I think one of the most important forms of communication is prayer. And one of the reasons why uh, Andrea and I really committed early in uh, the time of raising our boys is to have the boys pray and to listen to them pray because their prayers were an overflow of a reflection of their heart. I, I could tell by what they prayed about what they cared about. And I could easily tell by what they never prayed about, what they never talked about, what they never communicated to God probably didn't really register on their radar. And one of the most important things that I learned was, boy, the way that we talk to God really reveals a lot about how we see God. That is the power of communication. That if it, wasn't, it didn't come out of us, unless it was already in us, the words that I use or the silence that can sometimes be deafening really matters and it makes a difference. And with all of the weight of that, I can understand those moments when we just want to say to ourselves, I'm just not going to talk anymore. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there realizing that the words that we use with one another matter so much and therefore, I, I think it might be best if I just don't say anything at all. Fear, embarrassment, One of the scriptures that my dad loved to remind me of, and it was because, for those of you that don't know me, I'm talkative. Every report card my dad and mom ever received, um, all the way up to probably high school, and it's because I think they just gave up at that point in time, but every report card said, Jim likes to talk. He can sometimes be disruptive. He thinks he has things to say and believes that everybody needs to hear them. And so I guess it maybe is in some sense for that reason. My dad, who's just a very quiet man, um, said to me, <laughs> quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes, son, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That was scripture that he preached to me regularly. To which I usually responded, that's a great point, dad. Can we talk about that? My, my dad, when he was... Uh, kind of just wrestling with matters of faith when he was younger. He told me this story. I've never forgotten it. My dad was, uh, came home after really kind of thinking through some things. You know what it's like when you're in high school, early college years, and you're trying to answer the most difficult ideas. 
And he walks up to his father and he says to his dad, you know what I've been thinking? And I don't think there's a God. To which my grandfather responded, son, don't be a fool. And that was the end of the conversation. How is that the end of the conversation? I just made a statement. And my dad even confessed that he kind of did it to try to provoke him. And maybe it's because my grandfather knew that there were two psalms. You know, there's two psalms. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical. And it begins like this. The fool in his heart says there is no God. And I guess my grandfather was trying to figure out what to do with Proverbs 26, verses 4 and verses 5. Don't answer a fool. Don't answer him. Just let his foolishness stand. Let his foolishness sit. And and by the way, just in case um, you have any questions about that, next verse. You need to answer a fool. Or else he's just going to be wise in his own eyes. Is that a contradiction? Two verses back to back in the Bible. Do not answer a fool. But be sure to answer a fool. How do you know the difference? And the answer is wisdom. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to recognize what the scriptures teach about how we speak to one another or even the wisdom sometimes to refrain from speaking to one another. Realizing that the words that we say matter. But like I learned from the book of Ecclesiastes, there really is a biblical precedent. And I've had to learn this the hard way. Fewer words sometimes. Fewer words. I want to read to you some Proverbs. I'm going to rattle through these, kind of like Drew did last week, helping you see that this is a theme that the book of Proverbs has on a regular basis. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is prudent. I guess if the words of our mouth are a reflection of what's going from our heart, like what's coming out of us, then learning to guard your mouth seems to have an effect on your heart. The next from Proverbs chapter 16. A contrary person spreads conflict and a gossip, one with a lot of words, not discerning when to be silent. A gossip separates close friends. No, 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 what I was trying to do was, no, 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 I just felt like they needed to know No, no, no. Well, let me explain. Hmm. Gossip can separate close friends. Proverbs chapter 17 says this. Whoever conceals an offense. By the way, this isn't a matter of um, there is a sin and I want to cover it up. Most likely what this is actually describing is a grievance against me. That I choose instead of letting you all know what so and so did to me. We're just going to keep it between ourselves. Isn't that hard to do when you've been wronged? Whoever conceals an offense promotes love. But whoever gossips, whoever doesn't know the value of few words, separates friends. Proverbs chapter 25. A word spoken at the right time, meaning 
There's time not to speak. A word spoken at the right time is like gold apples in a silver setting. Lastly, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20. Without wood, fire goes out. And without a gossip, conflict dies down. I I just thought I was trying to help. I just felt like if we talked about it a little bit more. I'm grateful for you. For my wife, who really has learned to teach me, you know, I think it's better right now that we don't talk. How is not communicating a good thing? And I've learned at times, it can be a really good thing. Fewer words, the Bible teaches. Fewer words is a really helpful way to deal with pain and struggle and difficult. By the way, it's not that we will never speak. It's it's pretty common that when someone is hurting and struggling in a relationship, most of us, we we just want to talk. We're afraid of the silence. We're, We're terrified that the silence is going to bring separation. And so I just... I just want to meet. Is there any way that you and I can meet together, that that the three of us can sit down in a marital situation? We just need to talk. And I know the temptation. I understand it. But, But as important as speech is, what the Bible actually teaches is that words can be dangerous and can be difficult And sometimes it's really important to just slow down, use fewer words, trusting and being very, very patient that there's a plan and a purpose that God is about and that God is doing and that over time, the reality of what is happening and the the purposes of what is happening in our lives cannot be immediately fixed by our words. And therefore, I think what this fewer words idea really teaches us is patience. The second thing that I think the Bible actually teaches is not only is it important for me to realize there is wisdom in fewer words, but the second thing is intentional words actually matter, which means that we're being very, very careful and we're kind of limiting the kind of verbal conversations that we are having, but that also that we're being very intentional about our words. Proverbs chapter 15 says this. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive. It's interesting that one of the accusations that Jesus makes against the Pharisees is that the way that they have added to the scriptures, the way that they have added to the word of God has actually only bound people. It has only restricted them. It added a load that they didn't need to carry. Jesus said, but I've come to make your burden light. Come to make your burden light. And so it's interesting. The wise make knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fool just blurts out foolishness, not discerning, offering up very unintentional words. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 23 continues. A person takes joy in giving an answer and a timely word at the right time. How good that is. I'm always um, enamored by those people 
who are able to, in a, in a staff situation or in a meeting situation, how they're able to just kind of wait and wait. You know these people? They wait and they wait and they wait. Their words are few. And so when they speak, you lean in. You know who I'm talking about? How many of you want to be that person? Oh, I so want to be that person. I so want to be that person. I so want to be the one that, that when I say something, there's a, there's a lean. Well, a lot of it has to do, he's describing here, is like an intentionality. I think in the same way that uh, with our words, that when they are many, it, 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 it comes like junk mail in the mailbox. It, it becomes like just junk mail in your, in, your, uh, in your inbox. It becomes white noise. Intentional words. He continues in chapter 21. The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. So often, again, when we think about the words that we use, we think about the destruction or the damage or the complexity that it brings to others. But in the end, that is only a reflection of the troubledness within ourselves. In the same way that I just, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Oh, I wish I hadn't spoken in that way. I wish I hadn't been either that upset or whatever it is. I just wish that I had been more intentional with our words. And then lastly, and this might sound kind of similar to the, to the previous one, but I think it takes it to the next level. The, the book of Proverbs particularly speaks about not just fewer words and not just having an intentionality with our words, but then knowing strategically the right words to speak at this moment. What's the right thing to say here? Again, Proverbs chapter 15, which has a lot about our conversations with one another, says this. The mind of the righteous person thinks before answering, but the mouth of the wicked blurts out evil things. Carefully reflecting and thinking, going through the hard work and, and processing, does something need to be said? Yes. What needs to be said? Here it comes. Can, can you just stop for a moment and think about the number of conflicts that would either die down quickly or never ignite in the first place if we were to take that proverb to heart. Thinking before answering and not just blurting out the first words that come to our minds. He continues in chapter 28. The one who rebukes a person will later find more favor than the one who flatters with his tongue. See, that, those are the right words. We know what flattery does, right? Flattery, um, sometimes well-intended. Let, let's just be very clear about this. What, what I've really learned through this series of, uh, of, of, of wisdom and, and just my work through the last few years through the Psalms and, and the book of Proverbs particularly is that it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to note that our intentions don't make our, uh, the consequences of our words just go away. Oh, but I meant... Listen, like I'll, I'll take that into consideration, but just because I meant or just because you meant, there's a lot of well-intended foolishness that exists in the world. And a lot of well-intended foolishness comes out of our mouths. And that doesn't excuse our speech. 
But I just want you to know I meant well. Listen, then, then you are not guilty. I am not guilty of meaning harm. We're not guilty of that. But the word still did their work. So he says, listen, I want you to be aware that rebuking someone actually brings favor later. But the person who only knows to say, good job, the person who only knows to like something, it's all they know how to do. That's not good. It's not helpful. Lastly, Proverbs chapter 12. There is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And I think it's good for us to recognize that that healing and the the complexity of uh, communication, talking with one another, Sometimes the healing that it brings um, is in a moment of fear or a moment of uh, frustration. Uh, It is soothing words, words of comfort and hope. And then there's the kind of healing that comes, that stings. The, The kind of healing that is needed because an infection exists. Or something needs to be surgically removed and it's, it's not simple and it's not easy and it involves a tremendous amount of, of pain. And yet in the end, it brings healing. These are how the, the, the right words are described in scripture. Now listen, it's easy for us to say, yeah, that's right, Jim. Words matter. I'll be more careful next time. I'll definitely try to be more intentional next time. And man, I would love to, 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 to make sure that the words that I speak are right. But how do you do that? How do you do that? And the answer is, we find a hint towards this in Proverbs chapter 26. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go there, because I wouldn't mind if you would either circle these words. These are, this is the kind of, that comes from the Proverbs that Ashley read to us this morning, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. When you look at these two statements, what I love about it is that it speaks the truth about the complexity of life and the brokenness of, of humanity, the brokenness of us. And then the responsibility for us to engage one another and to do so in a way that is not reductionistic, that is not just simple, but it deals with the reality and the complexity of it all. Trusting that God is actively engaged in this process. God is actively engaged in our conversations, in our communication with one another. That I am not reduced to trying to figure this out between me and my friend, me and my spouse, me and my children, me and my enemy. But instead, God is actively engaged in this conversation as well. And therefore, God gives, in the words of the one who wrote Proverbs, two verses back to back which seem contradictory and they're not. It just means that in real life and in real time, there's no such thing as just a one-size-fits-all answer. So often we want that, don't we? One size fits all. One way fits all. Well, you know what? I've heard these things. You just need to be nicer. You just need to be nice. If we were just nice. By the way, nothing wrong with being nice. 
I actually agree. We could all be nicer. We all should be nicer. The problem is, is that to just throw that on everything is foolishness. Because why? Because verse 4 actually says to us rather clearly, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. That that kind of engagement can sometimes be flattery, but it is not wise. So you know the nice people. There's another group of people, and they like to be the truth people. Yeah, that's right, Jim. It's not about niceness. It's about the truth. We got to speak the truth. We just got to speak the truth. By the way, I'm all for truth. And I think it is important that we speak the truth. And that we speak the truth all the time when we're speaking. But to just throw the truth on it. This is why the life and the ministry of Jesus is so fascinating to me. Because Jesus, probably more than anybody else, we we have literally four Gospels describing his engagement and his involvement with so many different kinds of people, his disciples. Random strangers who walk up and engage him. His enemies opposing him. And what I find to be so reassuring, so comforting, and so insightful is Jesus' ability to look at each person in each circumstance And just speak truth to them. Or say nothing at all. I know whenever I look at the words of Jesus or the actions of Jesus, I go, yeah, but it's always like he's cheating, you know, because he's God. Because he couldn't get it wrong. And I know that's true. But there is a profound wisdom that we can learn as we see The peace that exists in Jesus' life while everybody around him seemed to be worried or concerned or overly talkative and yet Jesus seems to know perfectly when to speak, what to say. And obviously something was going on when an official says to him, are you not going to talk to me? You're not going to say anything? Do you not understand the consequences around you? And do you not know who I am? Who's he talking to? Do you remember this speech? Pilate. Do you not know, he says to Jesus, that I have the power to either free you or to bring about your own death? And then Jesus speaks. You have no power other than anything that God gives you. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. Don't answer. But then in verse 5, it comes along and it says immediately following, answer a fool according to his foolishness or he'll become wise in his own eyes. And again, it's not that what the proverbial writer is doing is he's not just trying to say, yeah, life is complicated. Although that's true. He is inviting the reader in. So this is how the book of Proverbs just constantly comes in front of us. Wisdom calls out to you. Wisdom speaks to you. Wisdom reaches out to you. And for those who have, it's almost like it's a a parable. And for those who have ears to hear, you need to hear this about wisdom. You need to apply these truths into your life. 
When and where, and, and just like in a parable, if you ever try to short circuit the process, what I want is wisdom. What I want are five easy steps. What I want is a clear and promised outcome. What I want is, and by the way, that's not reality in our relationships. That is not the reality of our, even our relationship with God. And what is needed is this ongoing engagement and evaluation of what is happening. And there is a constant discerning. Do I say something? Do I not? And then the risk of speaking or not speaking. And the risk of saying the right words or not saying the right words. And I think what is happening right now in our culture. And that's why I think this wisdom series is so important. And particularly on this topic. Um, I had a, a young man come up to me. I was in the middle of our, of our wonderful time of COVID. Um, and, and it wasn't even about COVID, but you know, all of these things happened. Uh, the isolation that we were experiencing and then heightened problems in our culture. And, and this, 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 this gentleman actually said to me, he said, I'll tell you, you know what's happening to me right now? And I said, what? And he just said, I'm, I'm just finding whether it's at work or whether it's at home, um, whether it's online, whether it's whatever, I just, I don't know what to say anymore. And I'm so afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm so afraid of it being taken out of context. I'm so afraid of not being understood that I just think it's just best for me to shut up. And I said, how did you know what I was thinking? <laughs> How did you know? The reality of those two verses are going to bring a, a deep temptation, I believe the majority of us, to just shut down. And, and I would even say to shut down and to call it wisdom. And yet these verses say, not an option. You can't just always claim verse 4. You can't just label everybody else as a fool and I'm not going to say anything. You can't just protect yourself like that. There is an urgency, there is an earnestness that exists in our world and something needs to be said, thought about, dissected, and, and then spoken to intentionally and, and, and properly. And that is why I like these words of Jesus found in chapter 7, Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. You can, you can turn there or you can just kind of follow along on the screen. I, I just wanted kind of a, the, the verse 6, but I just, again, I, I believe in context so much. I thought, no, this whole section matters. Jesus is kind of concluding in his Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he actually says. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard for which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure that you use. What he is describing there is the biblical principle that um, the way that you treat others, if you will not forgive them, then you will not be forgiven. The Bible warns against that kind of double standard. The Bible warns against one rule for your family, one rule for yourself, and then another rule for somebody else. 
That kind of an us-them favoritism. That's not an option. So Jesus says, the standard by which you use, just so you understand, is the standard that's going to come back on you. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? And the answer is, because I didn't realize that the standard that I use for others is the standard that's going to come back on me. That's why I couldn't discern. I didn't realize that, that I had to be consistent in the way that I was speaking and acting and reacting and that there is a consistency, there is a, uh, this, this constant interaction that we actually have with one another that actually matters. And so in the end, I only see me as the hero and everybody else as the villain. I only see my side as that which is true and good and everybody else wrong and broken. I just don't have the right perspective. Jesus continues in verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. This is verse 6. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. What I find fascinating about this is it begins in verse one, don't judge, and it ends in verse six. And by the way, if you wanna know how to work this out in real time, you need to judge, evaluate whether or not you're dealing with pigs or dogs, and then act accordingly. It's almost like he understands Proverbs 26. Number one, realize the standard with which we speak, the standard by which we judge, the standard by which we interact is the standard that will come back on us. And therefore, verse six, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under your feet, turn and then tear you to pieces. Jesus tells his disciples, you need to be discerning. First of all, you need to be very, very careful that the standards that you are using, you are applying to yourself. Don't be a hypocrite. And, and once that's the case, you'll be able to see clearly. Once you've applied the standard to yourself, you'll be able to see clearly. What will I be able to see clearly? Who it is you're dealing with and how to deal with them. So I want to give you, I want there to be a, a strong practical element to this. And so I want to give you three things that will hopefully guide you. It won't fix it. It's, it again, it's, it's not, um, I don't have names for you. Well, this, this person here, do this. Or in this situation, do that. It, it, it never works like that. But here's, here are three things I would encourage you to do. Three things that I have learned to do over time to really help me to know how to navigate between chapter 26, verses 4 and verse 5. The first one is this. Evaluate the relationship with the person that you're dealing with. What is my relationship with them? Who are they to me? And by the way, I want you to know that you've probably heard from a number of us from the stage warnings or concerns about the issues regarding social media. I'm not anti-social media. I might appear like that sometimes because I'm deeply concerned about the trajectory and the way that it's going. And the more that I read about its effects, particularly on young people, 
I, I think my concern is warranted. But it goes much deeper than that because I, I really believe that um, there is almost a freedom or a permission in that semi-anonymous world to like or not like, to speak, almost without consequences. We're not really engaging in real conversations. And so in the end, like, we're offering advice on people that are our friends who really aren't our friends. We're engaging with, with people and, and the relationship isn't there. I was teaching a, a Sunday school class a few weeks ago with the church builders and we were talking about some pretty controversial subjects. And I, by the way, have a lot of opinions about a lot of things and I, I said to this class that I deeply admire, I said, and by the way, if any of you are just looking for someone to come into your home and just give you advice on every topic, let me know. I'll gladly come do that. Anyone? I don't think I've got a taker yet. I think it's important before we speak that we ask the question, what is my relationship with this person? Is there a need for me to talk into this particular situation? And then evaluating from there that the less of a relationship, the less there is a need for me to actively engage in either support or to oppose. Second thing, to evaluate your responsibility. This is closely connected. So if this is the relationship that I have, then what is my responsibility? And, and how does my responsibility fit into this? Because for those of you who are moms and dads, and you're talking to a child, something needs to be said. If you're married, you've been given a place that is so important for you to, by the way, always rightly discern. It doesn't give you a pass to say what you want when you want. No, all the same rules apply. Fewer intentional and right. But the cowardice of I'm done talking or the frustration and aggression, okay, there's something I'm gonna say to you. Both of those don't work. It's not right. And to evaluate what is my responsibility in this relationship and there's just a lot of us that, and this is what, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think what happens is there are some really important relationships that I need to be more engaged in. And so there's some really like superfluous, like on the, on the edges of my life that I'm over-engaged in, that I'm over-involved in, and it's taxing me emotionally and relationally. And so I'm not even present in certain relationships because I'm way involved over here. I mean, the number of times that I've had to provide some kind of counsel because of an argument that got sideways in social media with someone. So who is this again? I've never really said kind of one of the reasons why I kind of stepped out of that world, but a lot of it had to do with um, in 2020, in the summer of 2020, a lot was going on. And I was staying connected to former students who are now pastors in other parts of the country that I am very loosely connected with. And I'm just actively engaged like I'm in ministry alongside of them on topics that matter a lot and I'm staying up at night and Andrew's going hey are you still on that I'm going hey it's Twitter we're saving the world here what is my responsibility I have to discern that and then lastly to evaluate the situation 
What is the situation that's going on? Is it important? Does it, does it really, really matter? Now, by the way, this doesn't fix it, but you, you know about the Venn diagram. I'm telling you that if you spent more time thinking through the relationship with the situation and your responsibility and you aim for the center, there's lots of times where I'm looking at the relationship and the responsibility, but I'm not paying attention to the situation. There's so many times in, in which I, I focus on two and ignoring the third. And I have a lot of well-intended misses. I pray that this helps you. So then, by the way, this is what you need to do. When it's all said and done, you need to then take the risk of speaking or not speaking. Okay? This is what you have to do. You have to take the risk of speaking or not speaking the truth in love can't avoid that sorry and you get to figure out what it is I want to give you uh, a famous uh, fable that I heard recently I'd never heard it before and I thought this was absolutely fascinating it won't solve the problem but it will help you realize what's at stake there was one time a deep conversation an argument that were happening between a tiger and a donkey the donkey told the tiger, the grass is blue. The tiger replied, no, the grass is green. The discussion then became heated, and the two decided to submit the issue in arbitration, so they approached the lion, the king of the jungle. As they approached the lion on his throne, the donkey started screaming, your highness, isn't it true that the grass is blue? The lion replied, if you believe it is true, the grass is blue. The donkey rushed forward and continued, the tiger, the tiger disagrees with me. He contradicts me and annoys me. Will you please punish him? The king then declared, the tiger will be punished with three days of silence. The donkey jumped with joy and then went on his way, content, repeating over and over and over again, the grass is blue, the grass is blue, the grass is blue. The tiger then asked the lion, because he agreed to accept his punishment, your majesty, why have you punished me? After all, the grass is green. And the lion replied, you know the grass is green because you've seen that the grass is green. So then why did you punish me, the tiger said. And the lion replied, your punishment has nothing to do with the question of whether or not the grass is blue or green. Your punishment is because it is degrading for a brave, intelligent creature like yourself to spend time arguing with a donkey. And on top of that, you then came and bothered me with it to validate something that you already knew to be true. It is not wise to argue with the fool or fanatic who does not care about the truth or reality, but only victory of their beliefs and their illusions. And there are people who, with all of the evidence that is presented to them, not, do not have any desire or ability to understand, blinded by ego, hatred, and resentment. The wise thing to do is to leave them to their foolishness and pray that they will come to realize their folly in God's time. Hmm. So how do you do that? Two steps. One, speak the right words at the right time and in the right way. Then number two, after that's said and done, I don't even know if you did it perfectly, you need to grow in wisdom so that the next time a donkey or a tiger comes to you, 
you'll be able to answer them or not answer them in a wise way. You'll be able to engage them in trusting that, man, I did the best that I could and I trust the rest to the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time, this opportunity that we have to reflect on your word and how it speaks so clearly and passionately to our time. Father, I pray that you would give us a peace in the midst of the complexity of our age and give us insight. But in the end, Father, there is still going to be risk involved. And I pray that after we have done the hard work, that we would then boldly speak or not speak and that we would do the hard work of assessing whether or not our speech is helping or not helping so that the next time we can do what is right. For your glory, others' benefit, and our joy. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. Now we gather around the table, and I've been thinking a lot about how, how does that sermon have anything to do with communion? I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting how much in that final night the disciples did not understand what was going on. They had just finished arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus, for all that he spoke to them on that final night, there's a tremendous amount of silence. Why? Because Jesus knew to trust the process. To trust the process. So therefore, as we are engaging friends and fools, and as we are trusting the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, and as we are reflecting on it, may we find a sense of peace in the silence or peace in our words, knowing that God is in control, that God is working towards an end that we cannot fully know or appreciate. And may that teach us to have a courage and a patience with everything. Let us take the bread, reminding us of his body, which was given for us, and may we take and eat. And the cup, for us, let us drink. In light of the goodness that God has shown to us in Jesus, let us now stand sing praise to our great God.